started here at the Rusted Nail Speakeasy, Just One Drink. Welcome to Cross the Line 1524. We're recording with a live audience as usual. Sit back, relax, and join Dwayne Bischoff, Jeff Montag, Ruben Hunt, and myself, Alan Stanger, for the Common Man's Podcast. Cross the Line 1524. Oh, that's right. I tell you what, the drinks have been flowing pretty well here at the yeah, Rusted Nail man. Speakeasy. How you doing, Dwayne? I'm doing real good. Jeff, how you doing? I'm about empty. Uh-huh, he's about empty. I think he's empty. full, though. Ruben, how you doing? I'm tuning in. If I keep my damn hands off the wires, I'd be right better. Stop fidgeting. <laughs> Now mine's uh, fidgeting over here. I'm sorry, guys. I'm bad about that. Breaking the <laughs> yes, furniture. You are. Breaking yes, the you furniture. Are. Broken breaking chair. the electronics. Man, I get blamed for everything. Ruben's on two chairs now. A mic stand. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're going to have to start taking up a collection to take care of all the items that he breaks. <laughs> well, you know, guys, I am who I am. All right. <laughs> So we're getting re- getting ready to interview a uh, gentleman by the name of James A. McQuiston. So the, those of you that know us know that we like uh, the TV show The Curse of Oak Island, and uh, actually three of us have been there. All four of us would have been there yeah, this year, but stupid. COVID-19 took care of that. So James has been featured on that show. He has a theory uh, on Oak Island where the treasure came from. His theory is ranked number six out of all the theories. Um, so he has now has five books. When we first uh, talked about him, he had four books. He's written another book, which is actually a novel based on his facts that he's found. So, you guys, want to say anything about the upcoming episode? Everybody's going to hear. Well, I'm I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, just uh, the bit of reading I've done of his books, um, and the thing that intrigues me most with regard to Mr. McQuiston is just the in-depth that he's done on his own on his own genealogy and really kind of led him into uh, Oak Island. That wasn't his intent. Um, initially, he was doing his genealogy from Scotland and um, very, you know, very thorough genealogy. And uh, it's just really intriguing and then how it rolls into our interest in in Oka and uh, the Curse of Oak Island, and I think the theory that's kind of near and dearest to most of us, anyway, is is how it rolled from the Knights Templar to the Freemasons and exactly and, and exactly. that. So, so um, well, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna give the patrons of the Rusted Nail Speakeasy a shout out. Come on, ladies, let's hear. It. <laughs> Now we can talk. <laughs> Alan's out of a lockdown for a while. I'll tell you what. So they've been good nature because, you know, we were doing a phone-in interview, and uh, you guys are going to get to hear it. Uh, I want We'll tell everybody up front we decided to break it into two podcasts. He's got so much information that uh, we're doing. Two, it'll be broke down in two podcasts. So there's a lot of information. Uh, you'll hear the name Prometheus several times. If those of you that aren't aware, that's the production company that actually uh, – films records and produces the show the curse of oak island so when you hear that name 
um, you'll know what you're talking about. So here we go, a little James A. McQuiston. All right, so welcome to Cross the Line 1524. I'm Alan Stanger with... Dwayne Bischoff, Jeff Montag, and Ruben Hunt. And we're here with a special guest on the phone. We've got Mr. James McQuiston. Uh, if you've listened to several of our podcasts, we're big fans of uh, Oak Island. And James is, uh, he's actually been on the island on the show, and he has, I think, the sixth rated uh, theory on Oak Island. It's a theory that all of us, you know, subscribe to, quite honestly. Uh, he's written uh, several books, four books, and he's just written a novel about it as well, based on his findings. So, James, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing good. Nice to be with you, folks. Uh, great to have you on. So, tell us a little bit about the history, how you got started um, researching the Oak Island uh, treasure and where it went and, and where we're at okay. now. Well, uh, I am. I write a lot of what you might call hidden history books, and one of the books that I worked on hard for a number of years was my own family's Scottish history, and uh, the a gentleman in our family is the premier knight baronet of Nova Scotia, and I've known that for probably a, a decade, but I had no idea what it really meant, and um, I had included him in this book of our history, and I had actually even emailed him a number of times but I never got into what that even meant. And uh, so I never got started into Curse of Oak Island until I think it was season three. And I, that's when I was updating that book. Uh, I had probably just about doubled the number of pages in it because I originally wrote it uh, back in 2002, I think. And uh, so I had just happened to have been working on that section about this night baronet and then i took a break and i was watching the curse of oak island and this was probably only the second or third episode i ever watched in season three and it just struck me night baronet of nova scotia and oak island nova scotia gee i wonder if they'd have anything to do with each other so um i did a little bit of research but i really still didn't know anything compared to what I've found out by now. And uh, so I sent an email to their tours group, uh, Oak Island Tours, and I got an email back, and they said that they wanted to talk to me and that uh, Paul Troutman, who you've seen on the show a lot more recently, the last couple yes. years, yes. and Rick Lagina were going to call me. Uh, through Skype, so you can imagine I was incredibly excited. A excited and I was there, weren't you? Yeah. I could possibly find out, figure out, whatever to be ready. And uh, then when the day came, um, only Paul called, which I shouldn't say only, but I mean uh, Rick was not on the call because something came up on the island, whatever. So and we didn't Skype; we just did it by phone as we're doing it right now. But my wife sat in the room and recorded the whole thing on her phone while I talked to to Paul. And we talked for about an hour, and he asked a lot of questions, and I did have some of the answers. 
because I'd been doing some immediate research there, but I did not have anywhere near what I really needed. So, um, so Paul, well, he had made a, a number of requests of me for information. So I sent back and I did a, a thorough job, although compared to what I've got done now, uh, it was nothing in a sense, but, uh, and I sent it back to him to his email and to the original email. And then uh, other people got in on the email chain and eventually Rick Lagina was in on it and Craig Tester and Jack Begley and and uh, Doug Crow especially and Charles Barkhouse. And I mean, it's grown through the years, but also about six people from Prometheus. And so my answers to them could get pretty lengthy because it was a complex subject and plus I was learning so every new discovery I had to share so after about three or four months this would have been uh, fall of 2016 so that's when it started so after uh, three or four or five months period uh, another person that works there who does not want to be mentioned but is um, it's a lady who kind of is the the mother hen of the whole bunch of them. Without her, I don't know what would happen. And she said, "You, we've talked it over, and you need to write a book because all of this information you've dug up only exists in our emails to each other. And, you know, so she said, if you do, we'll sell it here at the Interpretive Center. So I wrote my first book, which is Oak Island Missing Links. And... That was a much more general book than where I'm at now, but it addressed, I, I, I kind of said that it uh, debunked the debunkers because I proved that certain things could happen. For instance, people from the British Isles or uh, the Norwegian companies or countries could sail to Nova Scotia much, much easier than Columbus sailed across the ocean because he went, 3,000 some miles right across the middle of the ocean, they could go from the edge of Scotland over to the Faroe Islands to Iceland and Greenland to Nor to Newfoundland and to Nova Scotia. So they always had a some place to stop on the way. Ports on the way. And it was almost only half the distance. It was close to only half the distance. So the idea that they were such a sailing, uh, all those countries, you know, they, it was safer to sail than the go overland you might get mugged so they did a lot of sailing so to think that they couldn't sail those from one set of islands or whatever to another and get there was kind of actually kind of crazy so anyway it was different things like that i came up with a theory of who Gluescap was and i had some uh proprietary information on the knights templar uh, because i'd been working with a couple gentlemen in scotland and Actually, I was nominated as a fellow with the Society of Antiquaries of Scotland because of all my writing in magazines and in books. And uh, so they, one of them sent me, he had a friend who pulled out every record of the Knights Templar, every official record in Scotland, through all the records of Scotland that he could find anyway, but it was a very long list. And a lot of it I didn't, you know, it would be hard to understand in today's terms, but it was land deeds and things like that. 
And then another gentleman was considered the expert in Scotland on the Templars, and he had just passed away, but before he did, he made this uh, recording. And so one of the other people I was dealing with over there sent me that recording. So now I had a recording that the general public didn't have, and I had this long list of uh, official records. So I had quite a background in the Templars. And so it was things like that, but it was, but they weren't necessarily connected. They were just my theories on all these different subjects that had to do with O'Pilot. So I did that book. So they had me, they invited me up in 2017 to talk about the book. But in the meantime, I was finding out more information and I got what they call Iolanitis because I couldn't quit researching and I still haven't been able to to this day. And uh, just so you know, I'm pretty sure that's contagious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there is no cure. Yeah. And you don't have to be sick. You can be uh, more than six feet apart and get it, too. Exactly, so. exactly. Right. You don't have to isolate, but you might want to isolate just so you can look for more stuff. <laughs> right. I, I'm sure my wife thinks I'm isolating because I'm in my office here many, many hours uh, doing this. But uh, so. As I was getting ready to go up, and through that uh, few months after the book came out, I was continuing to research, and I came upon this theory that this all came about in 1632. There was a Scottish settlement that uh, began about 1629 in Nova Scotia, and they were chased out by a treaty uh, in 1632 and the thing about it that was so significant is that the man who was given Nova Scotia received it in 1621 and he actually named it he they, there were French there and the Mayflower people of all people the Mayflower people that settlement didn't work out quite like they thought it was going to because this their sister ship couldn't make it and then half of them died you know within the first winter so uh the man that was uh there was a group supporting the plymouth colony and they were concerned about this uh embryonic uh civilization they were trying to create there and they knew the catholic french would not appreciate the puritan english being only like three days sail away so they wanted to send somebody into scotland they turned to the king and said uh, you know, can you do something about this? He turned to his uh, one of his best buddies, William Alexander, who is the key person in all of this, and said, can you get some Scots mercenaries, basically, to go over there and chase the French out? And he said, well, since we have a New England, a new uh, Spain, and a new France, if you give me that land as New Scotland, I'll do it. So he did, and New Scotland in Latin came out as Nova Scotia. So the country was essentially founded and named Nova Scotia in 1621, but he didn't have a large enough personal treasure to uh, finance it all. I mean, it was all somewhat virgin territory, except for the area where the French were living, the one port where they were living. And so he eventually came on the scheme of uh, creating the Knights Baronet of Nova Scotia, where they would each pay each knight would pay a certain fee and provide six men. And the men had to be 
of some good standing and uh, ability, like a stonemason or a leather worker, a good farmer, a real farmer, you know, things like that. That so because they wanted to build a hundred communities all the way around Nova Scotia. That was the initial plan. So that started bringing in some money, and he finally uh, got a ship over there, and they chased the French out, and they settled where the French were at Port Royal, which is on the opposite side of Oak Island, uh, of Nova Scotia from Oak Island. And they were able to continue to build that community and send more ships over each year with more settlers, and more people would sign up as Knights Baronet. <laughs> well, what the flying ointment for them was uh, the King of France and the King of England were brother-in-laws and the King of France was supposed to pay a dowry to the King of England who married his sister and he only paid half of it well the King of England at the time that was Charles I he was desperate for money so he told the King of France okay if you give me the other half of the, the dowry I'll give you Nova Scotia back but at the exact same time, within a couple of days, he told the Knights Baronet, oh, don't worry, I'm not giving up on Nova Scotia. So he was kind of playing both ends to the middle because he didn't know which one was going to work. You know, and he didn't want to burn his bridge. And I've noticed that a lot of that went on back then. A lot of uh, not burning the bridge and playing both ends to the middle with a lot of people. Um, because, you know, they, they, didn't, they didn't know what the future held, so they didn't want to too many big chances so eventually they gave it back and they got the order to leave in march of 1632 they got it on march 29th and this was a mystery i solved because the legend there was always that they were told to tear their fort down right after new year's but the the order to leave was dated march 29th so i thought well why would they make them stand out in the cold nova scotia snow for three months before they left well, I found out that New Year's back in the old world at that time was uh, March 25th. So they did. They told them four days after New Year's to tear the fort down and get going. And they had a certain amount of, well, a certain window to get out of there. But that would have left them trying to sail the North Atlantic in April. And uh, you can't, for the most part, sail the North Atlantic in April because of high winds and waves and freezing spray and fog. And I proved that with NOAA weather reports, with some weather testing that the province of Nova Scotia did. Uh, I actually talked to a sea captain, a lifelong sea captain up there, that, that said they would be heading into hell to try to cross the North Atlantic in April. He told me he was up there once and he had he ran into 80-foot waves, and oh, he, had a, he had a small crew, and he told them, get down below and get in your sleeping bags and stay warm. I'm going to get us out of this. And he said, I just kept holding the nose into the waves till they finally broke, and wow. I got out of it. And he said another time he was up there as late as June and had a foot of snow on his fishing trawler. So... And he's a believable guy. He's written three books himself, and it was Rick Lagina that set the uh, meeting up between him and I. I'll tell you the reason why is because he dove on a ship that's located within sight of Oak Island. That's all he would say. He dove on it before the treasure trove laws 
back in the 1970s, and uh, they wanted to know where it was, and he wouldn't tell them. He met with them, but he wouldn't tell them, and the meeting didn't necessarily go as everybody <laughs> planned. initially planned. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so uh, I think that Rick might have thought that I could squeeze it out of him somehow. So I met with him for two hours, and he was such a treat. He had very salty language, but he had some real stories, and he was just a tough guy that I wouldn't want to tangle with, even though he was my age. <laughs> and uh, so uh, I asked him point blank. I said, well, where's the location of the ship? And he said, treasure hunters don't tell their secrets or they won't get the treasure. And he said, if anybody's going to dive on that while I'm still alive, it's going to be me. So um, anyway, that was actually part of my theory a couple of years before that, that one of their the ships had sunk of this group that was leaving for a while. So my basic theory is they got chased out at a time when they couldn't go across the North Atlantic. And as they came around the Cape of Nova Scotia, the absolute best place to pull in would be Mahone Bay because it goes deepest into the land. And Oak Island, you could hide behind Oak Island, especially before the causeway was built. You could hide behind that with a, a ship and you'd be protected from a storm. And we know they took more than one ship because the order says, said, quote, their vessels. So we know that there were at least two, but several vessels went over there. So I'm estimating, I don't know why, but I'm estimating that there were four vessels. Anyway, so um, I believe that one of their ships sunk and they had this stolen treasure with them and that they did not want to take it back to England. So they buried that and other supplies and possibly other items. There's even reason to believe there could have been some of Sir Francis Bacon's writings, not necessarily Shakespeare, but uh, scientific writings, because he was a good friend of this William Alexander. So uh, I believe that they didn't, they thought it was a bump in the road, and they thought, well, we'll just bury the stuff here, but we're not sure when we're gonna get back, so let's bury it really well. And then what happened was the French took over Nova Scotia for quite a few years after that. When they got back to England, all these Knights Baronet were a little ticked off that they lost their investment, and William Alexander lost his investment. So he was scrambling to make money, and while all that was happening, the Civil War, the British Civil War, was brewing. And he had a direct role in that Civil War and in causing it and so everything just went to heck on them and they never they couldn't get back right away but i think that the treasure was looked for long before 1795 and i think that the three boys that found it had an inkling about it and were specifically looking i think people knew it was in that region but they didn't know where and they were looking everywhere for it and then once they found that pit every every group of people that had any knowledge which would be the people from Massachusetts, particularly Plymouth, the people that were in the Knights Baronet and the people in the Freemasons all congregated on that island uh, thinking and hoping that that's where that treasure was buried. I'm not getting too complicated for you, am I? Not at all. In in fact, you know, we, um, I'll be honest, we've got your book, so We've uh, been reading, reading and catching up on it. So, 
it's refreshing to hear you say the words personally instead of reading it from a book, quite honestly. So, okay. Agree. Well, I'll talk a minute about that tre- <clears throat> that treasure. Uh, this guy named Alexander Strachan, and I call him Al because we've already got William Alexander going on, and you get too many Alexanders in the way. But he also signed his name Al a number of times, and he saw he signed it A. Strachan, Al Strachan, Alex Strachan, and Alexander Strachan. So I like Al, so I picked Al Strachan. And uh, he stole this treasure. He basically stole it over the winter of 1622-1623. He started harassing the man that he was going to steal from in the fall of 1622, and they know it was stolen by the beginning of 1623, and not only did he steal the treasure, but he stole the man's wife, who was 30 years younger than that man. <laughs> and, uh, so the question uh, is then what the real treasure there was. Right. <laughs> right. And how I found out about that, I didn't find out about that till the next book, the third book. Because what had happened was, when I went up to talk to them about the first book, that was in 2017, I had gotten so much more information, and I, I got more information while I was up there, and I developed my 1632 theory, and I wrote Oak Island 1632, which happens to have a sunken ship on the cover. And that was in 2017, in the fall of 2017. And so uh, they had me come back up the following year for that book. And uh, I was hunting around, and I got connected with uh, a guy named Cal Hancock, Kelly Hancock, who was, at least for a while, uh, partnered up with Doug Kroll in the Blockhouse Investigations website. And they've done some amazing uh, research. But their research was all geared towards what happened on the island, basically. And a lot of books are that, you know, like uh, uh, Darcy or Bill Connors or Randall Sullivan's, uh, those kinds of books all focus on what happened on the island. And I knew there wasn't any reason for me to go there because that's been picked apart, you know, so much. Uh, But I wanted to find out what happened leading up to the island. So I was uh, emailing with... Cal Hancock, and he happened to be at the time the grand historian of the Grand Lodges of Freemasonry in Nova Scotia. And I don't know if he still holds that position or not, but he did at the time because that's the way he signed his emails. And he told me to look for a couple of old Masonic books. Well, I couldn't find them, but instead I found one called The History of Edinburgh Lodge Number 1, which was the original Freemason's Lodge. And there's a theory that there's one, they actually call it Lodge Zero, which is not too far away in a place called Kilwinnie, that that might have been the initial one, but it was not organized as much as Edinburgh, simply because Edinburgh was a lot bigger city and they had a lot more stonemasons there. And it was a stonemason lodge at the time, but it got converted slowly into non-operative Freemasons. And uh, actually, the first two were William Alexander Jr. and his brother Anthony Alexander. And the third Freemason, the third recorded non-operative accepted Mason, was Al Strachan, the man that stole the treasure. And in that book, not only did they have have the handwritten records of that, but they also had a list of the treasure. They had the whole 
treasure story. So that got me to thinking, well, why would this be in a Freemason's book if I mean, there has to be more significance to it than just, oh, by the way, one of our first Freemasons ever was a thief. You know, I mean, it would be something that they wouldn't want you to know unless there was something significant about it. And what I found out in the long run was that the man that was written to, more or less, he had been the Grandmaster of the Scottish Freemasons. His uncle had started Dalhousie University just up the road from Oak Island. And his uncle was uh, the grandmaster. That that uncle's father was a grandmaster. That uncle's son was a grandmaster. And even down till today, the name is Ramsey. And even down till today, the current leader of the Scottish Freemasons is a Ramsey through his mother. And he goes by the nickname of Ramsey. And so the Ramsey name has been prominent in Scottish Freemasonry right from the very beginning. And uh, they were the lords of Dalhousie, Lord Dal, Lord Dalhousie. So they called it Dalhousie University. And I connected. This is funny because I connected about eight different ways. I connected Dalhousie to Oak Island, and we had a meeting set up with me, Rick, Doug, and the film crew to speak to their archivist. And it had been set up for like a month. And you know, I was going up there again for one of one of my years I was up there and uh, two days before the meeting it got canceled with no with no excuse why no, no, no so, you know talk about first of all it threw a wrench in the works but second of all why you know did we step on a wrong set of toes or, getting or whatever too, getting too close to something yeah and Doug told me that we were at the uh, at the Nova Scotia Archives studying one day and searching for some newspaper articles about the Oak Island Association and a few other things. And he said, you know, uh, I, I mentioned it. I said, I wonder why the heck they canceled that. And he says, well, uh, I was told that there is a room, or at least there was back in the 70s, a room in the basement of the one of the university buildings that was chuck full of uh, shelves and shelves full of Oak Island artifacts that had never been cataloged or investigated, but they had just been removed to there. And he said, I'm trying to figure out a way that I can get, you know, get my foot in the door to see them. And I said, well, what I would do is make friends with one of the janitors or the maintenance guys, because, <laughs> you know, they're, they're the ones that are going to tell you the most tales. They're going to say, well, I know exactly where that room is. Come down here at midnight and I'll take it and show it all to you or something like that so i don't know if he ever pursued that or not uh but i worked with doug on a lot of things an awful lot of things for months it would take, take months sometimes like that medallion that's on the front of my third book uh, that that took three three or four months and i'm still a year later i was still finding out details about it but uh so after the second year i knew i had to write the third book because that's when i got it pinpointed to the treasure and why they might have left it there, and how you know how they got chased out, and why they might have thought they had to leave it there. So I knew I had to write the third book. So they had suggested the first two books, but I wrote the third one, which is Oak Island uh, Knights, because it was a combination of Oak Island and that knighthood medallion that's on the front cover, which was actually found up at New Ross. 
and I identified what it was. I identified there were only three of them in the world, that one of them had been melted down, and I found out exactly who that belonged to, and then I came up with a theory of how it got there. And so I'm, the photograph on the cover of my book is the only good photograph anybody can see anywhere because there was only one existing photo that anybody knew about before that, and it was just a Polaroid of it laying down on the floor so you could barely even see it. We had to twist arms to get the guy to come in to show it to us, on a, and he chose a Saturday to come in, and the Oak Island crew doesn't work Saturdays because they work like 10 and 12-hour days, and they want their weekend. So I get to the island on, well, on Friday, we were working through his cousin. And he said, well, maybe next week. And I said, well, it can't be next week because uh, I'm leaving on Sunday. So it's tomorrow or never. And he said, all right, well, I'll talk to him. So at 8 o'clock in the morning, Doug calls me and says, get over to the island as soon as you can. He's coming at 10 o'clock to show us the medallion. So I get there, and Rick's on the phone to Prometheus trying to convince him to bring a film crew. And... Uh, I, I'm listening to him talk, and then he hands me the phone. He said, here, Jim, you talk to him. <laughs> so I didn't even know who I was talking to. But uh, I told them how significant it was, but they said, believe me, we just can't we can't do it. He said, if, if I could even get a crew, it would take four or five hours, and the guy's not going to wait around that long. So we had to do it without a film crew, but luckily I got a lot of photos, and some of them were in my book. And... Uh, so anyway, I called that one Oak Island Nights because there were two facets to it. One was that knighthood medallion, and the other one was the Knights Baronet of Nova Scotia. So uh, I went back up again. So I was up there in 17, 18, and 19. In 17, I was the last person to, uh, to present in the war room because they had built a duplicate up around the corner where tourists couldn't go to. And the idea was that the old one was just a tool shed originally, and it wasn't built that well, and they were getting bigger and bigger crowds of people in it. It didn't have uh, uh, decent air conditioning. They had a lot of artifacts in there, uh, uh, photographs and newspaper and magazine articles and all that. They didn't want them to get ruined, so they wanted something that had better climate control. And it was right smack across the causeway, so when you pulled in, uh, they could be in the middle of filming, and... Uh, crowd of tourists could get out of their car and start yelling or whatever and then it would interrupt their filming so this way nobody can interrupt their filming and so i was the last one when i got done and i was out there talking to everybody and i thought i'm gonna look in there one more time because i'll probably never be back up there and there was a lady in there pulling the everything off the walls and and i asked what's going on she told me and then she said uh she said but it's top secret and she zipped her lips so I had to sit on that. I couldn't tell anybody about that for about a year until it came out through other people. And I've been real good to that. Well, I signed an NDA, but it's not just the NDA. It's that if they can't trust me, they're not going to trust me. So, um, you know, I'm not going to run. But I'm not going to tell too many tales out of school unless they're funny tales. Because <laughs> I like to tell the good anecdotes. But, uh. So then they had me back up in 18, and that's uh, when my theory was starting to really develop. They had me back up there in 19, and again, I had begun to uncover a lot of these uh, family connections. And 
I didn't realize it at the time, but I had been coming at Oak Island from strictly this historical point of view, but now I was switching to who came to the island when they after they discovered the money pit, and how would they have been related to the story? And uh, so, as a as my most prime example, uh, Franklin Roosevelt was re- related to all three groups of people: the Knights Baronet, the uh, Mayflower. He had uh, three men that signed the Mayflower Compact that were his forefathers, and he was Freemason, a grand master of Freemasonry. So uh, he's the most stark example, but there are many other ones that are examples of of that. They either check off at least one of the boxes or two boxes or all three boxes. And the thing about it is there's a lot of people that were Freemasons, a lot of people that could have descended from Knights Baronet and a lot of people that could have descended from Mayflower people. But when you look at the people that came to Oak Island as landowners or early searchers, virtually all of them fit, check one of those boxes. So what are the odds of that happening? You know, so anyway, uh, so I knew I, well, I started writing Oak Island Endgame, which I thought was going to be my last book. I actually thought Oak Island Nights was going to be. And I wrote Oak Island Endgame starting to, flush out some of these family connections but I still didn't realize this whole Mayflower connection and all that I just realized uh, that I was looking at it from a different point of view now I was looking at well who came to the island once the discovery was made what what did they have in common and I started realizing what they had in common so I got that one done and uh, so I was up there three times and then uh, I was lamenting to my son one day, you know, I I wished that my books were all in one book because I'm not just writing them to sell books. I'm writing them to get this information recorded. That was the initial uh, reason for writing them. And he said, well, why don't you write a historical novel and try to put the most important stuff into that as a story because people love that. And I had I'd done one little minor one. It was a good book, but it was very small, short. And I thought, well, you know, I don't have any other angle to approach Oak Island with but this, and it might be fun because there's a lot of seafaring and swashbuckling and stolen treasures and and love affairs and all that going on, so why don't I go ahead and do it just and see where it went? That was more, that was less intentional than the other books. But it was going so well that I went ahead and polished that off. So now, believe it or not, I thought for sure I was done, but I'm on to my sixth book because I really have nailed down some of this who's related to who and how would they know about Oak Island, that kind of stuff. And I, when I started it just a few months ago, I didn't know if I'd even have enough to fill a book. But I ended up, as usual, having more than enough. I've been working on that for the last few months, and I'm hoping it'll be out uh, around November. Perfect. And, uh, Just in time for Christmas. Yeah. And yeah. the new season of Oak Island. And I have and the new season, yeah. Whoops, that. And the new season of Oak Island. Yeah, yeah. And I have talked to them about this a little bit, um, but and I am under another NDA, but there's, uh, I don't think there's, 
I, A, I don't know if I'm going to be on a show. That's one thing about it is I absolutely never know if I'm going to be on the show. And the first year I went up there, even though they filmed me for uh, two hours, two hours, yeah, two hours, they never used any of it. So, uh, and of course I waited, waited to see. They told me, we can't tell you when, but you'll see it on the preview the week before, which kind of <laughs> oops a little bit, you know. <laughs> So uh, they're just trying so to hook you on the show. Yeah, and you're telling people I might be on, I might be on, and then you're not on, and you're embarrassed or whatever. But <laughs> so here I didn't know it, but uh, Rick did, didn't know that I wasn't on the show because he doesn't watch it. He told me flat out, I don't even watch the show. He said I'm so busy trying to figure this thing out up here, and uh, so he said, but when I found out you weren't, weren't on, I was pretty upset. And I told him I want you back up here. And that's why I went up to next year. So that one, I was up there for, in the war room for two hours again. And I we went up to New Ross, where that medallion was found. And we met the owners of the New Ross Foundation and uh, listened to their theories. And we saw where the, it was found by a couple kids playing with their Tonka toys in the dirt. And now those couple of guys are older men like us. Uh, but the one that act, that principally found it, he held on to it tight for all those years, and he was afraid that the government would take it away from him. So we had to get a letter from the Nova Scotia government that they would not take it because he found it before the treasure trove laws went into effect. So uh, they guaranteed it, but he still was very nervous when he finally brought it down and showed it to us. Wow. So anyway, they filmed me for four hours that year. Well, then they did. Then I was on, and I did get a phone call from Rick, and he said, I don't know what episode, but it, within the next three episodes, you're going to be on. And then I got a phone call a week before from Prometheus, and they said, we do not send... I was really surprised at this. He said, but we do not close out the editing on a show till one week before that show airs. Wow, and one really? week one week before it airs, we send that to New York where it gets broadcasted from. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I thought, well, they got to, you know, they're filming all through spring and summer and fall that they'd have plenty of time to have the shows all in the can before they ever started showing. But they keep them, they want to keep it as alive as they can, you know, and, right. and I suppose if there's some new discovery or whatever so um they're editing right to the last minute i'll tell you there must be so much uh digital film footage on the floor there because they only <laughs> showed me for 15 minutes or so probably tops and they filmed me for four hours and uh so then the third year i went up i thought well they're only going to show me for that amount of time and I had a two-hour presentation, so I'm going to condense everything this year down to one hour so that if I get 15 minutes of it, I'll get a bigger slice of my actual presentation. <laughs> right. right. More condensed kept, version. But, sorry, go ahead. I said a more condensed version. Yeah, a more condensed version. And I did have new items, and that was my that part of it was my connections I had made to Dalhousie University. But, uh, so... Uh, as it was, they'd been working all day long. They, those guys were so weary when they came in the war room. Uh, but we, but they kept me in there for four hours this time. 
and uh, I was tired, and I hadn't even been working all day, although I'd been traveling the day before and everything, but uh, but uh, I couldn't believe they kept asking questions. And so, again, out of those four hours, they used, uh, you know, five or ten minutes in the, the following year. So, all total, I've been filmed for about ten hours, and I've been on the air for about less than a half hour, I would say. And they used bits and pieces in other shows. Like once they used me where they were uh, insinuating, which was part of my story, that Daniel McGinnis knew about that there was a treasure somewhere in the area. He was out looking for it. He didn't just trip over a hole in the ground. He was looking for one. And uh, then I made number six theory in the top 25 theory show and then i think they basically just re uh edited the show down to the top 10 theories and i was again number six at that point and there were three different voting blocks people wonder how that came about but there are three different voting blocks and the oak island team was one of them the people that visited the island were another and i i believe prometheus was the third but i'm not 100 percent sure on the third voting block and so they all voted blindly and then whoever came up came up well i'm very sure that the reason i made it all the way to number six was the oak island team because they've been so receptive and yeah they've been pushing you and the theory that you have yeah and 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 my god there's hundreds and hundreds of emails when i'm trying to go back and i I think oh i think i wrote those guys about this and I just get lost in my own email. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I got 5,000 some emails in there, not just to them, but, you know, I go, where the heck did I put that note? You know, and it, 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 that's more frustrating than anything else. So, so uh, anyway, it's been really good. And um, I was going to tell you a couple anecdotes. One Absolutely. Of them, yeah, tell us a little bit about working with those guys on Oak Island. Well, number one, they're all just like you see them on TV just like that and if anybody's not it would be gary drayton only because he just is an absolute clown virtually <laughs> every minute of the day and they they you know want to they they show him like working hard with this detector and i'm sure that he does but when he's not detecting when i'm around him i i drink uh he claims it wasn't beer so he's probably drinking ale but i said i drank the beer with him <laughs> many nights and he said i never touched the stuff but uh he was touching something because we were sitting there drinking for a number of hours and uh so he's quite the jokester and and he doesn't uh pull his punches on the jokes that he the remarks he makes but you know they wouldn't get on the show but right and one anecdote about him was uh we were heading over the island one day and he was leaving i said he in his in his car and we were walking to ours and i said are you going over to the island now? And he said, no, I'm going to play Celebrity Walmart. And I said, what the heck's that? And he said, well, when I'm up here, they'll have me come up for a month at a time or two months at a time or whatever. He said, I need things. So I'll drive into the Walmart, and I can't walk down a single aisle without somebody wanting their picture taken with me or wanting to tell me their Oak Island theory. And so I, I got a good laugh out of Celebrity Walmart. And I know it was true because every time he'd come down to the lounge where they put us up in this really nice place that had music every night, and every time he'd come down, he'd just get swarmed with people. 
You know, I mean, I, he'd come down and wave to me, and then I wouldn't get to talk to him for 15 or 20 minutes because right. all the pictures being taken and stuff. But other than that, everybody's the way they are. And, uh, you know, Dave uh, likes to use that one-choice word a lot, and they're always beeping it out. And that's just the way he is. He just, that's in his vocabulary, and he's not going to, again, pull any punches. So the very first year we were there, uh, we had just met some of the other people and we're sitting on the walkway to the, or the porch, I guess you call it, to the old war room. And my wife was there and this lady that I was telling you about was sitting there and and Rick was there and a few other people. And here comes Dave walking over and my wife says, there's the bleak bleak man. And he says, you're bleak bleak right. Except he didn't say bleak bleak. <laughs> And we all laughed, and I thought, my gosh, the guy doesn't even know us. There's women in the group and everything, but he doesn't care, you know. So that's just the way he is. No but, filter. Uh, no filter at all. No, no filter at all. And, and you know, there's people that get away with that. If they always talk that way, people just say, well, it's just him. Right. But if I would have said it, they'd say, oh, my God, who would we bring up here? You yeah. know. So, um, but then, and then last year, in 2019, we went up, uh, Charles took us out to see the top stone for the Nolan's Cross, which is way down in the bunky weeds. I mean, you wouldn't believe it. And he took us down on an ATV, and it was all mud road the whole way. And then him and I walked through the mud to go to uh, another stone. And it was as deep as we could walk in with boots on. You know, it's pretty ridiculous as it was. And uh, so as we were leaving... Uh, I saw his mason ring, and I said, oh, there's your uh, Freemason's ring, and he was showing it off to us, and he said, yeah, and I got this one in my pocket, and he pulled out a Knight's Templar ring, and um, he told me why he doesn't wear it, which I don't want to reveal, but he said, that's with me in my chest or breast pocket there every single day of my life, so I said, wow, you are such a happy man and he said well why wouldn't i be i hunt for treasure on a on an island every day right, <laughs> he said, right. you got a point you know can right. i have a job right. but uh he's just he's a real gentleman and you know he gets i guess you might say ripped on or busted sometime for being so quiet and everything but he's constantly paying attention and assessing he he wants to learn and he want and he's assessing what the situation and all that is and on the other hand, you have Jack Begley, who also wants to learn, but he's like a, a rabbit. You know, he, you get in the room with him, and he's 20 questions, and he he always jumps ahead on my presentations. It's funny, because he'll ask a question that's two pages down in my dialogue or whatever, you know, and, and I'll, then I'll have to say, I'm getting to that, Jack. I'm getting to right. that, you know. <laughs> but, uh, so, but he's the great guy, too. All, all of them. I mean, they're just the nicest people. I, I, I just... I had no idea what to expect, and uh, it just was like I was just walking. In fact, I told Rick one time, I was on the phone with him, and I said, you know what really appealed to me right in the beginning was, it was just like as if I got my buddies and said, hey, throw your chainsaw and your shovel in the pickup truck and tell Billy to get his backhoe. We're going up there and figuring this dang thing out. Right. He said, That's exactly what it is for us. Exactly what it is. So th three of the four of us here actually were on the island last year. Oh, so great. We got oh. to meet uh, Dave and Charles both. 
it was over the fourth of july weekend so nobody else was there uh uh we, you know we happened to go up that weekend the laginas were back home and everybody else was as well so we did do a tour there and charles does a tour and you know he he knows his stuff um oh yeah he makes that tour if you've ever done that with him uh, no, I never, I never did the big tour, but he gave us uh, two different tours on the well, golf mu- cart. I'd much rather had the golf cart tour. So yeah, yeah. I have yeah. to tell you, the day that he took us on the golf cart the first year, we get back, and uh, they've closed some of the island off since this time. This was 2017, but they've put some restrictions up for obvious reasons. But um, so we get back, and he says. Uh, because they called him on the walkie-talkie and said, you got to come back. we got something here you need to look at or whatever. And so we get back, and he said, you know how to drive a golf cart, don't you? And I said, heck yeah. And he said, here you go. So we took back off, and there was no restrictions. We went everywhere that we could find a road that a <laughs> golf cart could make it on. And we went to the money pit and everywhere. So uh, I get back, and there's the producer from Prometheus. And he said, hey, let me take you on the golf cart. And I said, well, Charles already did. And I went. He said, I'll take you to some new places. So we got went up to the Muddy Pit Hill, and, and he said, let's walk down to Smith's Cove. So so it's a very short walk. I mean, it looks long right, the show. Right. Three to 500 yards, somewhere in there. And that was before they did anything. So it was just like a beach. It was a stony beach like we have here on Lake Erie. That's where I live, right on the lake. So it was very similar. And... Uh, and there was no signs of any work or anything being done. And he showed us that G stone uh, where, that has the Masonic G right. chiseled right. onto it. And uh, then we were going along, and he says, "I'm good." He said, "Talk about breaking an NDA. I got to show you something." So he took us into this really scraggly wooded area, and it turned out to be Samuel Paul's lot. And they didn't have a permit to go to his foundation yet. And in fact, we couldn't get within 200 yards of it. So we saw those big walls that he made, and we saw the foundation from 200. Well, I don't know if it's maybe it's 200 feet because it doesn't seem like it goes that far away. And I could take photographs of it, but we couldn't walk over there. But he said, "This is what I want to show you." And he showed me this depression in the ground that was perfectly squared off, and it was I'd say roughly 12 foot by 12 foot. And it had dropped about six inches. And I'll tell you, it was it was growing up with some uh, scrub brush and whatever. But if I had a shovel, I would have started digging right then because it was <laughs> so enticing and right in the middle of this woods, you know. And they eventually did dig it up. They got permit. He said, we're not supposed to be here yet because we don't have the permit. But we're not doing anything. We're just looking at it. So he said, we almost have the permit to dig this up. But we don't know if we're going to get a permit for Ball's Foundation. They eventually did because they had Laird there. Right. Uh, and before this, they didn't have Laird on the team yet, and they couldn't just go in there. So anyway, they did dig it up. They took a backhoe up in there, and they they dug down. It was soft soil for a couple feet down, and then there was nothing. So it was, it was a whole lot of nothing, but I'll tell you, it was awful. Uh, Exciting in, to see. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that was that first year, and uh, then they closed it off. The second year, they closed a lot of it off. We still got to tour around a little bit, but uh, they had that year. They had a pretty strict executive producer, and uh, I mean, real strict. And so, it we we didn't get to congregate as much 
Although it was not, it was cool because he was kind of I, I don't want to be critical in any way, shape, or form, but he, he was very being very cautious, let's say, with me and my wife, even though he knew I was supposed to be there. And then all of a sudden, here comes Rick and Gary and Jack and Charles, I think it was, around the corner. And they're like, oh, Jim, how you doing? And they're giving us both hugs and everything. And then and the guy kind of, like, backed up against the wall, like, jeez, uh, maybe I shouldn't have been so rough on those people. But uh, he, told, he explained to me, he said, you know, people don't realize, but he said, I'm responsible for everything that can go wrong on this island during this period. He said, that big stone on the ground right there, you know, just big gravel, chunky gravel. He said, if somebody trips on that, sprains their ankle, it's my fault. And he said, that's the problem up here, is that there's just so much that can happen to tourists and and theorists that come in and everything. And uh, he said, so I, I have to really watch this because it's my neck, you know, something happens. So I, I understood what he was saying, you know, right. and, and why he was the way he was. Uh, I, by the way, I, I met... Uh, one year, I think it was that year, they had a producer from Naked and Afraid. He had been working on that for the, like the last four years or something, and they brought him up there to help him with that show. Have you watched that show, Naked and Afraid? Uh, yeah, a few times. Yeah, yeah. I, I can only and, stomach that one a few times. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Well, I asked him if that was all real, and he said, "Oh yeah, it's all real." And. Wow. Uh, yeah. I said, well, it always seems like they get a good meal, like about two days before their extraction. And he said, yeah, they do. And he said, but we don't give it to them. But he said, once in a while, if they're desperate, we might throw a snake in their camp. But he yeah. said, they have to fend for themselves. And and uh, he said, but think about it. He said, they're there for 21 days, and we get 40 minutes worth of film that we can use. Yeah. He said, most of the time, they're mad at each other, and they're exhausted and sleeping. So well, he yeah. said, "We get, we have to wait and wait for something to happen." So yeah, cause, he, cause he it's said, like, it's an extremely it, boring show to film. You know, we we have to pare it down to forty minutes that we can actually use. Yeah. So James, it's like it's like here when we get hungry, we get angry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but that was cool meeting him, and uh, it, but everybody, uh, you know, even that producer, he was just doing his job. He wasn't unfriendly after right, right. I realized what he was doing and he realized who I was, whatever, however you want to say it. But uh, but anyway, uh, but a little story about Rick. He, uh, I was we I was on the island for like eight hours probably that day and I'd done my presentation and they were taking me around, showing me stuff and whatever. And uh, so this was the first year that they did that dynamiting yeah. Stuff. Yeah. And uh, and I knew they had some charges, and that was one of the reasons they had partitioned a lot of the island off, because they didn't want people to trip over that stuff. And uh, so I'm leaving, and he, and I'm thinking, you know, he's probably quitting too. It's been a long day. Well, that was the day we went up to New Ross, and then we came back down. So that alone was quite a trip. We were up there two hours, and uh, it took a while to get up there, and we stopped and ate and all that. So, uh, he reaches in his pickup truck and gets his chainsaw out. And I'm like, what are you doing? And he said, well, I got to go cut some new paths for the tours because I don't want anybody to get hurt. We got dynamite planted up there. And I'm thinking to myself, you are the star of the show, man. Go sit in a chair and sign autographs and get some flunky to go up there and cut those trees down. So he took off with a chainsaw and that lady I was telling you about to stand there, she said, that man, she said, he's here seven days a week. 
he doesn't quit. He never quits. And you know that resonates through him to the audience. Yeah, yeah. it does. Yeah. And uh, another story about him, just show you what kind of guy he is. Two, two quick stories. I don't know how much time we have. I don't know what the time deal here is. Oh, we're, pretty, we're pretty easy. You know what we're going to do, though? We're going to take a short break because our glasses are empty and we need a cocktail. Oh, that's very important. So we're here with, <laughs> yes, it is. We're here to cross the line 1524 with Dwayne Bischoff, Jeff Montag, Ruben Hunt, and I'm Alan Stenger. And on the phone we have. James McQuiston. And we'll be right back. So we're here with Joey Singer from Lakeside Custom Deer Processing. Joey, tell us a little bit about what you've got going on. Well, we've been doing deer much our whole lives for friends and family. Me and Dad just kind of looked at each other this year and thought, why not open up the doors for the public? and kind of share our passion, all the stuff that we offer, all the summer sausage and jerky, stuff that all of our friends tell us is so good. Absolutely. So I'm excited for Joey because, you know, as long as I've known him, even when I was a kid, I knew that they they did deer processing for friends and family. So now they're opening the doors for the general public, which is awesome. Yep, we're excited and nervous. Join the crowd. (laughs) It happens to all of us. That's right. So... You know, deer season's coming up, so I believe youth season's coming up here shortly. Yeah, September 26th and 27th is opening youth season. We don't get hit too hard during youth season, but you get to see a lot of excited kids, and we're excited about that. That's awesome. So what all are you going to offer? We're going to have summer sausage. You can have, I think we have five types that we offer different types of cheeses and jalapeno and cranberry i mean just basically if you name it we can make it but we're only kind of advertising um about five different kinds we've got jerky obviously about five different types of that too um, we're gonna have snack sticks which uh we're gonna be calling smokies smoky smokies snack sticks. Yeah, all right something a little different and uh you can get cheese and jalapeno whatever else you want in those i'm excited to, you know I haven't got a deer for a couple of years. Haven't even tried. Of course, they're all over the place here, so you're making me hungry right now. So <laughs> We're going to have brats and mets and all smoked sausages. We're going to have all the same stuff that you know, we do for our family. Awesome. We're going to be offering all those to all the goods. So if you've never had any of the jerkies or uh, snack sticks, it's good stuff. I'm, I personally like the cheese and the uh, jalapeno. It's got a little bite to Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Know, that's, that's my, that's favorite, my favorite. That's a customer favorite. Yeah, so there's nothing like drinking some homemade wine. Or bush light. Or, or a bush light. <laughs> uh, or, in my case, some blended whiskey. We're, we are at the Rusted Nail Speakeasy, so any alcohol is good. Yep, absolutely. So you can find Joyce company at on facebook at lakeside custom deer processing give them a shout like them message them get yourself a deer and give joey a call yeah come see us we're gonna have a price list um, everything here in about a week so once again it's joey singer with lakeside custom deer processing another proud sponsor of cross the line 1524 Oh, I tell you what, we had a blast interviewing James A. McQuiston. Uh, This is part one of uh, two parts. Part two, he talks more about his experience with the folks on the show, The Curse of Oak Island, some anecdotes, uh, talking about uh, Rick Lagina and and, uh, Mr. Barkhouse, and and it's a really good list as well. Just so much information, we thought we'd put it into two podcasts. So, uh, once again, we'd like to thank James uh, for taking taking time out of his busy schedule uh, to visit us here on Cross the Line 1524. Uh, once again, uh, we'd like to thank all of our, of our listeners. 
Uh, if you get a chance, please uh, like our episodes and give us a five-star rating on whatever app you use. So for Dwayne Bischoff, Jeff Montag, Ruben Hunt, I'm Alan Stanger, and you've been listening to Cross the Line 